This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Your Money on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Kent Smetters. Hello, welcome back. Kent Smothers, professor here at the Wharton School in Philadelphia. You're listening to your Money Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. For the rest of the show, you know the routine. I'm a financial planner with me, taking your calls about your own financial situation. So if you want to know what to do with your money, how to invest it, save it, maybe even spend it, uh, give us a call right now. Live on Tuesdays uh, here at one eight four four Wharton. Just one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Uh, welcome back uh, on the show. In fact, in studio, Tom Meyer, who's the CEO of uh, Meyer uh, Capital Group, uh, not far from here in Marlton, uh, New Jersey. And he's been uh, with the firm that his grandfather founded in 1963. And in fact, a, a fee-only fiduciary since that time, not very common uh, back then. Love having you on the show, Tom. Just before we go back to the phone lines, which I promised to do here, uh, just remind us a little bit about your firm, and uh, if you have a typical client, what's yours you like? First of all, Ken, it's great to be here, uh, as always. Um, yep, my grandfather actually uh, was a fee only uh, fiduciary in 1963. Yeah, he was like a pioneer, and uh, he'd be very happy to see what's going on today. Uh, yeah, in the in the fee only space and the RIA space. Yeah. Uh, we are money manager fee only, 100% of the time fee only. Uh, we deal with uh, families, we deal with foundations, uh, we deal with uh, corporate pension plans, um, basically an asset allocator, yeah. uh, dealing um, in funds and ETFs and some high dividend uh, quality stocks. Um, perfect client would be maybe a business owner, mm-hmm. um, high net worth client um, that is looking for some type of uh, uh, investment advice that they're too busy to maintain themselves. All right. And again, speaking with Tom uh, uh, Meyer, who's a, a CEO of Meyer Capital Group in Marlton, uh, New Jersey. Uh, Lavin Two says, give me a call. Love the answer a question here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And let me go to Eric calling from Ohio. How can we help you, Eric? Hi, Kent. Uh, Long time listener. Great. Glad to be on. Great. Um, I'm calling uh, because uh, my parents are cashing in on a uh, life insurance policy. Mm. Uh, and making my my two sisters and myself the beneficiaries, um, so I'll be receiving um, just shy of twenty thousand um, dollars. So I'm just wondering if I should use that money to uh, pay off part of my mortgage, which would eliminate the uh, private mortgage insurance. Mm-hmm. I think that would you know essentially get a return on investment um, of like nine percent, something right. around there. Or should I save it? Um, you know, build some savings because um, I expanded my my family. <laughs> Just got a son this past March, so we're probably going to have to upsize our house here in the next two years. Yeah, and often people think you know housing. That there's often the other things that come first be, be, before that. So if. Let me step back for, for, for a second and ask, uh, have, they cur- have they already cashed out the life insurance, or why, why are they doing that? Just because they don't feel like they have an insurable risk, or what's the purpose of doing that? Uh, essentially, talking to their financial advisors, they said that um, for a long-term kind of, um, I guess, uh, pass-along or inheritance mm-hmm. um, for me and my sisters, that didn't really make sense under the current um laws. So 
Yeah. Uh, they have other avenues, and this is just one of them that they were yeah. pursuing. And how 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 that, old well, how old are your parents, and what health are they they in? Uh, they're pretty good health. Uh, they're sixty seven and and sixty five. So. Okay. So basically, they want to do something for you now. I mean, I, I will say, you know, that the cash value of uh, plans are often. Uh, in, in, it, it depends how, especially how long they've held on to this uh, insurance policy. Often are not going to give you the right value relative if they were just to hold on to that and produce a larger death benefit upon their their death. Uh, but let's put that aside, and uh, they feel comfortable, yeah, getting a, a smaller amount today. So let's talk about then you, Eric. Let's talk about your emergency funds. You you, you have some kids, it sounds like, or at least a kid. Um, how much have you saved? up for kind of rainy day um, and then kind of what's your monthly expenses? Sure. Um, I, you know, I, I, I left my, uh, my metrics at, at my office. So sure. You don't, don't have to have be exact. Just ballpark it. Just ballpark yeah. it. So, so um, combined household income, we have about 175 to 185 K mm-hmm. um, a year. Uh, it's pretty split evenly between my wife and I, we both contribute, um, 14 to 16 percent to Roth 401ks. Um, We've set up a uh, 529 plan, which we contribute 250 bucks per month to, um, and we're saving about 750 dollars a month in savings. So we have uh, 15 thousand dollars in cash. In cash for for emergencies. And what's your just ballpark a dollar expenditures per month? How much? How many? uh, How much you spend per month? Um, six grand. Six grand. grand. Okay. All right. So you have, you know, roughly around three months worth emergency expenses here. And and how variable is your income? Does it bounce around a lot or is it pretty steady? Uh, It's pretty steady. Um, I, I'm a consultant, so when I work overtime, I get paid for it. Yeah. At the same time, consultants often, you know, their income can vary a lot with the economy. So we often think about three to six months worth of expenses that you set aside in an emergency, maybe, you know, a little bit higher when you have, you know, younger amounts, you know, dependent on you. It it often depends on the variability of your industry. Oil, gas, I'll tell those people sometimes 12 months of, 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 Mm -hmm. you know, uh, expenses. So, you know, even though things are maybe good now, we like to, for consultants, like to pack away a little bit more uh, closer to that six month range just because uh, consulting uh, varies a lot by the economy simply because that's one of the first things companies uh, cut back on uh, rather than their W 2 employees. Oh, well, tell me about life insurance. How much of that do you have? Um, let's see, $750,000 for both my wife and I. Okay. And so, uh, you, well, for each, for each. So you have times two. Uh, okay. Okay. So it, let's, let's assume that that's covered then. Uh, and it sounds like you're saving well for retirement, which is great. And your PMI, um, how much uh, is, is that per month? Um, it is about $81. $81. Okay. So how much would you have to pay uh, to get that rid of that 80, $81 a month? Uh, about 17000 17, And I would owe taxes on, say, 3000 or 3500 bucks. Yeah. Of the 20 grand that I'm getting. Yeah. So... 
So you, you essentially did it back at the end. I mean, PMI is going to wear away anyway at, at some point. So how much how much are you uh, getting in, uh, in terms of how uh, would it have otherwise worn away in a year or two, or how many years are we looking at? Oh, it, it'd be three or four. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm okay. paying extra in principal, so I see. about seven hundred fifty dollars in principal right. each month. So, so I see. Um, so, and, and you're right. I mean, that in yeah. many minutes, that that's how you did that nine percent return thing. I was uh, doing some quick math myself. You're, you would essentially be mm-hmm. almost be saving like three thousand bucks on a on a seventeen thousand uh, uh, dollar investment. Uh, so it, it worked. We're assuming that you have a decent emergency account. Your life insurance is in de- decent shape, um, and you're getting you know. Again, quick calculations, almost a nine percent, almost risk-free return, uh, uh, reducing that PMI uh, for the next three years. Uh, so, uh, Tom, your thoughts? Yeah, Eric, I, I'm going to go back to you said something about taxes on that twenty thousand that you're getting from your parents. Yeah, it probably is uh-huh. not true. I, I don't understand what that was. It was how do you owe three thousand dollars on that twenty grand? Um, for based on uh, the amount of actual cash that value that they put into the life insurance policy and then um, some sort of prorated amount. I, I've got it all printed up in a, in a letter. And all right. So they're taking out the taxable uh, part of the cash value. Also. Yeah, yeah that, exactly. that must be what's going on. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Let's okay. let's just take that as given, but you should definitely triple check that. Yeah. I, you know, it's kind of tough to take a guaranteed rate of return and, and throw it away, yeah. to be honest with you. Um, I kind of like the idea, to be honest with you. Uh, you have no other debts, correct? Uh, besides, like, auto, yeah, two vehicle loans, but we pay those, um, you know, above. The, What's uh, the interest rate on yeah. those? Uh, 3%. All right. Okay. My, my house has the highest and. Uh, yeah, what? What's the mortgage rate? At three and a half. Yeah. So it's, it's, as long as you don't have credit card debt, you're definitely yeah. going to be less than 9%. So, yeah. Tom, yeah. your thoughts? Yeah, I, I would take it. I, I, I definitely would, would, would take that guaranteed rate of return, to be honest. Yeah, with you. that's what I'd be doing, too. I, I don't mean, think it's a, brain, a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. So Eric, you kind of answered your own question there, but that's what I'd be doing. If you had credit card debt, obviously, we'd like to interest rate uh, rank our debt and pay the highest rate. Debt offers. This is like getting, uh, you know, uh, you know, very high return, uh, risk-free return. So th- thanks so much for the call. I really appreciate it. And that one was an easy one because the caller actually knew the answer coming into that one. Uh, but it, 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 it's, it's, it's it well, it, he comes from Ohio. Oh. It, it, it's it's about it's, it's Ohio. The Buckeye the, State. The, the Buckeye is that State. What that's about, yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. That's that's the reason. Huh. So again, speaking with Tom Meyer, uh, giving us great, great advice here, and uh, uh, this is your money and give us a call if they answer questions about your own finances here on your money it's what the show is about and get live on tuesday so grab the call uh, phone and give me a call here at one 844 that's 1-844-942-7866 let me go chris calling from north carolina how can i help you chris yes sir enjoy your show it's very valuable thank you um so I know that you invited our calls to um, <clears throat> for us to inquire about some investing, but uh, you had that nice guest on yeah. to discuss security, so I want to ask you another security question, if I could. Sure. Go go for it. So I had a thumb drive stolen with all my data on it. I did the right thing by freezing my credit, as you and your nice guests were discussing today. Yeah, yeah. But I, then I took the step to call the IRS 
you asked them what I could do in that regard because I didn't want anybody collecting my Social nah. Security today. Well, not just Social Security, but your tax refund too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, did, I didn't walk away from the call with a high level of confidence that they were willing to give me step by step. Yeah. So, And I'm still in that place, so I was I'm delighted by discovering your call, so I thought I'd kind of got call and ask you the question. Yeah. If yeah. you had some recommendations. Yeah, I mean, you can call the IRS. I'm not sure how uh, super helpful they're going to be because they're really understaffed, and this is a really tough area. You can even call Social Security. Uh, they're different. Uh, and so the, the ones who administered the Social Security records in Bethesda, and Maryland happened to be there only a few months ago. Uh, they, they, in fact, are a completely different agency. You could call them as well. The issue there is that, you know, there, it, it's, it's, I mean, we're talking about COBOL code is what's running on these machines these days, and they are not necessarily going to be in a great situation uh, to do much uh, about it because they issue the refund checks uh, pretty straightforward in, in the case of the IRS, and they try to make it back later. Social Security has a few more checks along the way, uh, uh, but nonetheless, the, the identity theft problem is real, especially if you find out if people put, put in. I mean, this is the key. If people have done a change of address, that's the real way that they would steal your money is through a change of address. So that's what you want to find out. Uh, make sure that the address that they have on file um, on IRS is still your correct address. And on this case of Social Security, you can actually go online to check that out because you can actually go online to figure, uh, even do a guesstimate. It's not a super accurate guesstimate, but do a guesstimate of what your future Social Security benefit will be based on your earnings history. And there we'll have your current um, information as well. Any Quick tips, Tom, uh, on uh, top Chris, of that? I, I went through a situation where I had my credit frozen. And I got to tell you, I mean, I was on lockdown. And they did a great job, a yeah. little bit inconvenient. Um, but I never took the step to go to IRS. But yeah. I was pretty happy with the uh yeah, my guess is that IRS isn't going to be super helpful on that, but you can at least check, make sure your current address, because how someone steals your refund is they file the taxes, but then they do a change of address uh, on you, and that's what you really have to monitor. So thanks so much for calling, Chris. Really appreciate it. Again, speak with Tom Meyer of Meyer Capital Group, uh, doing a great job answering questions here on your money. Give give me a call if they answer questions about your own money here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four. Nine four two seven eight six six. Getting live on Tuesday, so give me a call right now. Let me go to Jim, calling from Texas. How can we help you, Jim? Uh, hey guys, thanks for taking my call. Uh, yeah, I'm about fifty-seven and just left my firm with a pretty good exit package, so I still have to pay taxes on it, but it'll be in excess of a million dollars. Yeah. Um, I plan to go back to work uh, for another 10 years, but, and not right now. And overall, I've kind of hit the number minimum I was shooting for by the time I retire, which is about 2.6 million. Uh, 1.6 is in, uh, retirement, you know, accounts, IRAs, 401ks, and then, you know, a million or so in, in cash, in addition to the half a million that, that you recommend having and, and the paid off house. And I'm wondering, am, am I, you know, I, I kind of know the business. I, I think the answer would just be, you know, buy a couple of cheap index funds. But um, it, I'm also kind of a believer in there's no use in taking a lot of risk if you don't have to. I was wondering if uh, if I would be a candidate for a deferred annuity for part of that because, you know, bonds just aren't paying a lot. And um, um, I, I also hear some people saying when you when you have run out of tax 
uh, vehicles, maybe that's when whole life might make sense, something like that. What? I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So when you talk about deferred uh, annuity, you're talking about the, uh, doing that inside the 401k uh, a plan. Is that right? Yeah, would that be, or would I take the the million that's outside that's in a brokerage account? Well, in the old days, you would have to do it that way. And, but it, it was, in the last several years, some laws have been changed that allow you to actually do deferred annuities inside of a four hundred one inside of your four hundred one k. How old are are you, Jim? Fifty seven. Yeah, and when do you plan on retiring? I'm hoping to retire at about sixty seven. I'd like to work for another ten years. Okay, good. And and so the idea would be to maybe even postpone your Social Security claiming to around age 70 and then maybe also have this 401k deferred annuity kind of kick in at, at, uh, at that point as well. And when you say you have a million in cash, it's not literally in cash. It's a, I assume it's a taxable brokerage account? It's in a ta- Well, it's in cash right now, but it, I'm about to move it. It's just just recently been there. Oh, okay, because that's a lot of money ha- being held in cash uh, right now, and that's how, by the way, that's how your your broker makes <laughs> most of their money, <laughs> it's just yeah, to yeah. have that money sitting there in that sweep account, which they lend out at a higher rate, so. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm planning to put that just in a, you know, Vanguard uh, tax-managed equity fund, actually. Yeah. Um, that's what well, probably I not- want to know, is it should I buy bonds with that allocation no. or do a deferred annuity? Yeah. All right. So we definitely want to have our income-producing assets in our 401k and have our stocks in our taxable brokerage account because you're right to do something like a, a, a passive index, a really cheap uh, Vanguard like a stock market fund. I, I am not uh, – the tax management uh, part you probably don't need. Um, I'm just It's just a regular Vanguard total stock market fund. But uh, 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 Tom, the the role issue here is going to be, you know, um, inside the 401k, he could hold a bunch of bonds and he's a perfect, you know, position to be doing this asset location because he has almost you know, a little bit more than half of his money um, uh, in his 401k, but it's close to 50-50 all, all, mm-hmm. all together. Uh, and so he's in a great position to do this asset location. He has uh, more of his bonds in his 401k, more of his risk outside. Uh, but inside the 401k, there's a big, you know, debate. Should he be doing bonds or should he think about this deferred, you know, uh, annuity? It's not the same type of annuity, you know, that you often hear about in the marketplace, these variable annuities and so forth. These are the, uh, the more fixed annuities inside the 401k. How have you been advising people? Wow. I mean, we've gotten this question a lot. Um, Jim, you're absolutely correct where bonds are today. Um, people are not only, or in, investors are not only concerned about the rates, they're concerned about the risk. Yeah. They would like to have what we would call a, a guaranteed bucket. Um, first thing is first, the 401k, are you going to roll that to an IRA? Is- uh, probably. It's It's got a little bit in some funds that I like that are closed, actively managed, but um, mm. I, I'll probably roll it over. Okay, so... Let's. It's the whole annuity debate. Kent and I we talk about yeah. this, and we go over it over and over again. I, I, and I, I will say this: there are. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this. All right, I've been anti-annuity for 36 years, yeah. but there yeah. are no load, very low cost, no surrender charge annuities offered through Schwab and Vanguard that really you could consider, again, it's tough for me to get this out, but it's something that you might want to consider uh, not going through 
the typical insurance agent route, but going through a discount uh, broker that offers these type of products that weren't even around five years ago. Yeah. And in in particular, what's really important, Jim, is that we distinguish between most annuities out there are called variable annuities, and they have all this fancy bells and whistles, minimum guarantees. They they really play in the psychology uh, of you know this minimum guarantee, and uh, it's it's called loss aversion uh, that that people have. Uh, At the the same time, they pretty much don't really have real insurance value. Uh, They technically do, um, and that's what qualifies them as an annuity for tax purposes, but they really are not particularly tax efficient, and they, in fact, have lots of fees and uh, embedded in so many different ways uh, in those products. Uh, the, the type of deferred annuities that you get into a 401k are different. In particular, um, they, they are typically a fixed annuity, and some of those are actually very low load or no load, uh, as, as Tom was just pointing out, and it, it, they, they can actually be uh, a pretty good uh, way of creating that base layer of security. What's really important, so these are called fixed annuities, uh, what's really important is that you understand what the fees are, make sure that you're really comfortable with it, and the reason why they're attractive is because they're a true insurance product. The idea is that, you know, you could outlive your assets in theory, and that would be, you know, one thing that sounds good, hey, you know, I I live a long time, but outliving your assets, not a good thing, and so, uh, because because you know you're in poverty, and that's what annuity does. It keeps paying until you die, and you have to think about: Do you want it for a spouse? What's called joint survival. You have to give that some thought. Less amount, but it'll keep on paying until your spouse dies. And there's some creative things that maybe kicks down when you die first, and you know they get you know 50 percent or three quarters. And those are the different dial options. But that is a true uh, insurance product, and that actually produces what's called a mortality credit, uh, which is the basically the survivor's benefit of you know you outliving other people, um, and so what happens is that you have to also be comfortable with the fact that if you die, uh, it, 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 a lot of that value is going to not uh, be bequeathable. It goes to the insurance yeah. company, and that is in, in fact how the survivors get a good return relative to the risk-free rate. So it, it is a, uh, it's an insurance product ultimately at the end of the day, and you have to be comfortable with it. But I'm a big fan, um, especially if on the fixed annuities. That's a small fraction of all annuities that are out there. Um, when, it comes, yeah. when it comes to your cash, yeah, you have to do something with that that's way too much in cash. And I know people are nervous whenever the market goes up. They're nervous. It's, uh, it has to be at its peak and so forth. We don't believe in market timing here. Um, and, and, but that is the stuff that you take risk on in terms of your taxable brokerage account. And if you don't like taking too much risk, you de-risk in your in your, um, in your uh, tax deferred account. So the one case that you know it will have a lot of time to spend on this but if you go back to a previous episode i had someone on tia on the show you know some months ago we did talk about the case that suppose that somebody already has in your case you're 1.6 million uh, completely in bonds and you have about 1.5 million outside of that um and you just feel you know i'm i don't want to take 1.5 million of stock market risk right now um or even a million dollars with stock market risk uh just because 
for, for whatever reason. I'm still looking for a safer investment. In that case, um, that if you still have a truly insurable need, like you have a kid who's dependent on you, um, then you could imagine something like an, uh, a low-fee, low-load uh, universal life product, whole life product, and so forth, uh, that actually has a cash value uh, in that particular case. But even there, you have to. Uh, it only makes sense when you have an insurable need. Uh, as a pure yeah. investment product, it still uh, does not. Uh, work so it's a pretty rare c- circumstance where that does make sense. I do believe in universal life, whole life. In that particular case, it's a pretty extreme case. That you often, when people sell their business, where they have a big taxable brokerage account, or in the case if you have a disabled child who's dependent on you the rest of your life, a whole life policy makes sense there. Or in the case of you know serious estate planning, which becomes less important, you know, at, at these amounts. So thanks so much for calling, Jim. Really appreciate it. And and uh, again, speaking with Tom. Uh, uh, Meyer, uh, uh, and uh, who's the uh, chief executive officer of Meyer Capital uh, Group here, and uh, and uh, doing a great job answering questions. Just give me a call. Love on Tuesdays here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let me go to Lisa calling from Tennessee. How can I help you, Lisa? Hi. Um, yes, I have an estate question. Yep. My, I have three children: twenty eight, twenty seven, twenty five. 27-year-old still in college, and the 25-year-old is out working, um, and the 28-year-old is out. Um, he has his own home and working. Right. Uh, their father passed away and left them the, his parents' house, their grandparents' house, um, and in, we, in probating his estate, we found out that he had never probated his mother's estate, mm. uh, which is the house that he was living in and um, the kids want to keep. My daughter wants to move into the house. Um, so we probated the state ourselves because they didn't have the money to hire an attorney and found out that uh, when she was in a nursing home, Medicaid is billing $75,000 for um, fees, um, wanting reimbursed for that yeah. amount on her estate. She yeah. didn't have anything but the house. The house is not worth much. It's a two-bedroom, one-bath house that needs a lot of work. Um, However, the kids are wanting to keep it. Mm. Um, How can we settle this with Medicaid? What do I say? We've offered them one settlement amount that they declined. Um, We spoke with them one time. So just to be clear, when they declined, did they make it clear they're open to negotiation? Because in many cases, they're not even able to be in a position to negotiate. Uh, yes. But they said they just didn't like to offer, or is it the case that they um, said, hey, we, we just can't do this? The, uh, the first time we spoke with them, when we found out about it and called them, um, he advised that they would negotiate. It's been over eight years mm-hmm. since she passed away. Yeah. Um, so we really can't go back and argue the amount um, that they're saying. However, um, they had not done anything with it because her estate had never been probated. So they're yeah. just now starting the process because we opened the probate. Yeah, so a lot of people, a lot of people don't realize, and um, Medicaid is actually split between the federal government and states, and it's up to state. And if in fact you um, pass the asset test, that doesn't include your house. You don't have more than thousand dollars worth of assets. It varies a little uh, by state in the income test. Then Medicaid will actually pay for long-term care. In some states like Tennessee and Illinois and some others, they do have the right to, after the person passes away, to go after the that 
property that they attach themselves to the to the state and try to get value from from that property. Um, I'll, I'll tell you right now, the way that you're describing this house is probably worth way less than the Medicaid bill. So you could kind of say, you know, hey, you, you got some value there, even though it kind of stinks, uh, you know, uh, given that you thought you had this house. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, it, this is this it just comes down to negotiation because it, the good chance. I mean, how long do you know how long uh, this person was on Medicaid long term care? How many years was that? It was about three years. Yeah, he was in a nursing home the last part. How, how valuable her, do you uh, think this house is? Oh gosh, um, what? Uh, not. I mean, we. I was going to have it appraised. Yeah. Or, um, but probably. Gosh, they think it's worth about sixty thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, uh, looking at it from Zillow. Yeah. Um, but it really. I don't know. It. It needs some major work. Yeah. Um, doesn't even have a functioning bathroom at the moment. Yeah, you know what I would do? I haven't. I thought, Tom, by the way, uh, uh, to me, yeah, it doesn't make you? any sense yeah. to, to keep going with this. I mean, yeah. the house is worth 60, it's 75, even if you negotiate it yeah. down to 50. And if you think about the cost of, of, of redoing the home yeah. and the, the maintenance, um, insurance, and taxes, uh, you know, not, not only that, but Lisa, are you negotiating this on your own? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and what did you offer them the first time? Well, th- well, that's what uh, the gentleman that I spoke with the first time said. I bet if you were to offer fifteen to twenty thousand, you know, they may consider that. Well, at the time we didn't have the money to to do that, yeah. so we've kind of gathered. We offered fifteen, and he said, "No, we can't go that low. Yeah. It's probably worth sixty. Um, yeah. So we are gonna. We've called back. Haven't talked to him yet. But yeah. So fun- yeah. Third, you know, fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a negotiation, and um, it's going to be really hard for us to, to to you know on the spot try to figure out what's going on in his mind. You know, I, I I will say that I understand the value of sentiment and you know memories and so forth. But putting that aside, I mean, uh, you're probably better just to kind of try to walk away from this because it's not really. Even if you got the house for, in their mind, uh, undervalued, still forty thousand, because they avoids them having some hassles, taking some risk at you know fire sale and so forth. Uh, it still, like Tom says, has you know uh, a bunch of stuff that you uh, you don't even know if there's back taxes uh, that are owed. You don't know um, if there's uh, okay, that's good. Well, that's good. But then you know there's potentially so many repairs and so forth that it's really hard to know. You know, I, I would say with that money, you know, try to invest into kind of a, a, a new property. But the backup plan is, you know, let the thing go to auction and maybe show up at the auction day and see if that thing, you know, you can get it on a, uh, uh, for a dime. All right. Thanks so much for calling, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Um, again, uh, Kent Smithers here. Uh, you're listening to Your Money here in, uh, on Sirius XM. Give us a call. Love to answer your question here in studio with me is Tom Meyer. Doing a great job answering your questions here at one eight four. For Wharton, that's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And let me go to Ram calling from Delaware. How can we help you, Ram? Uh, hi, uh, my name is Ram. I'm calling from Delaware. Sorry. Yep. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you. Your session would be re- really informative. Thank Great. you. Great. Yeah. So uh, I make around one twenty five k. I mean, I do four hundred one k match. My employer does it for a six percent match. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do, I do have a personal loans around eighty thousand. 
and mm-hmm. I have a car loan for forty-eight thousand. So I'm trying. I'm pretty much paying off, and uh, the personal loan would be like done by twenty twenty-one mid. Uh, what confuses me is that I do not have any kind of emergency fund, yeah. um, but which I've been hearing a lot in your talk shows. Yeah. So, so which one should I be opting for? Should I be uh, paying off personal loan first, or should I just keep? Um, emergency fund. Aside. So you said you had two uh, things. You had the eighty thousand per personal loan. And what's the interest rate on that? Uh, I think they average around seven point nine nine, eight percent. Okay, so around eight eight percent. And you said you have about eighty thousand left on that, and you're going to pay that off in twenty twenty. So, I mean, that's pretty aggressive payoff with a with an income of one hundred twenty five thousand. How are you going to do that? No, I took. I, so, uh, what I've taken is eighty thousand. Uh, I I think that currently I owe around fifty thousand. So I'm just paying the regular amount that I owe. That's around seven hundred per month. So like three loans. Okay. So okay. I, I, I roughly make around uh, three thousand is what I pay towards my loans as well as car payment. Okay. And what's the interest rate on your car? Uh, it's three percent. Three percent. And you said that's like a forty thousand dollar. Uh, uh, yeah. note there. All right, so I'm not sure if I'm completely following the the, the personal loan stuff, uh, 80000 50000 and so forth, but it does sound like, um, you know, even at 50000 8%, that's a pretty high interest rate. I don't see it being paid off in 2020, that's for sure. But but what is your, how, uh, you said you make 125000 a year. How variable is that? How risky is it? Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, how much do you have in terms of an emergency account? Uh, so I started putting it uh, around 2000 per month from like a couple months ago. I have around 6000 right now. I mean, I haven't yeah. started doing anything. How risky is your income? Uh, I think it's pretty steady. Um, oh, okay. It should be fine. Okay, and you know, if the economy plummets, you, you just never know. So we like to kind of. Are you in you know, like uh, what what industry are you in? Uh, I work for a bank. A oh, bank. Okay. All right. So in terms of the uh, the so the real trade off is oh in your uh, your monthly expenses you says around three thousand bucks for these loans. What's your total monthly expenses? Uh, roughly around two thousand. Two. Th- Two thousand on, on top. Right, how much are you paying off on these loans for the car and for the uh, oh, for the person? Everything total would come to three thousand. Three thousand. Oh, that was including um, the loans and um, the other expenses. Okay, I see what you meant now. By your three thousand. Okay, so you have about maybe two months worth of emergency ex- expenses. So Tom, really, the trade-off here uh, should you try to boost that up a little bit and get to maybe at least three, four months uh, a, a little bit more aggressively, or put money toward an eight percent um, uh, and. Uh, yeah. it, 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 we're assuming for this purpose of this conversation, he says he's at least doing an employer match in the 401k. Oh, uh, what is your 401k worth? What's the value? Uh, it's right now at 23000 So that's yeah, the but, amount I see. Yeah, but he's at least doing the four. He's not throwing away the free money there. Right. He's got the match. Yeah. He's got the 6% match. So yeah. the big question is okay, 8% over to the left. Do you got to build up that, that uh, security fund? It's got, uh, to me, I think I, I would definitely get that fund up. You know, by at least six months. Yeah. You know, what I would be doing here, uh, and I'm in the same ballpark, but at the same time, it really comes down to how variable your income uh, is. You know, look at the last kind of 
recession or two, what happened, you know, in, in your industry. Um, I would want you to at least, and I didn't ask you if you're married and things that you have kids and so forth, but um, I'd like you to at least get to three months worth of emergency expenses. And then, you know, uh, so maybe make the minimal payments on that 8%, you know, those personal loans for a couple months and get that at least up to say nine, ten, eleven thousand, and and then you can come back to that you know, those those higher interest loans and try to uh, pay those down pretty quickly. And then when you get those paid down, um, come back to your emergency a, a, a account. I mean, it also c- it comes down to how risk averse you are in terms of you know, if suppose you were to lose your job, how easy are is it to get a job? Keep in mind, if you lost your job during a recession, how easy would it be to get a job like yours during a recession? Um, and if you say that that's a little bit tougher to do, um, that it says, okay, maybe you should get that up to maybe $15,000 before you uh, start paying out that $80,000 uh, too fast. And just real quick, I mean, it's at 8%. I mean, is there any way you're making good payments? You can go back to whatever institution this is with and maybe refi that 8%? You can. Possibly, yeah. I mean, I, or, I, it's a personal loan. Yeah, you could do, you could always give that a shot. You know, say here, making good payments. Uh, let's see if we can negotiate that down. So, thank you so much for, uh, for the call, Ram. And I'm going to try to squeeze in one more of Wendell calling from Maryland. How can we help you, Wendell? Hey, thanks for taking my sure. call. Sure. I have a quick question. Um, I know you've mentioned if you could hold off until age 70 to collect your full Social Security. Yeah. But my question, I have a a friend of mine, a co-worker, he, when he turned 67, he's still working full-time. He decided to start collecting his Social Security. And he said that they adjusted every year. So is that a good technique to do if you're working full-time still, or should you still wait to 70? Yeah, I, I think I know what you're, t- you're talking about. In particular, there's what's called the earnings test. And it's misunderstood even by well-meaning financial advisors because the earnings test takes away some of your Social Security benefit uh, based on your earnings. And this is on top of any type of benefit uh, tax that, that comes uh, for people who have higher income. Um, it, and here's where a lot of people get confused on this, and I think this is related to what you've been hearing, is that the, um, the, the earnings, uh, at, at, uh, a lot of times people think it's a, it's a tax, it actually is a reduction in benefits, and those benefits actually get recomputed um, once you, in fact, do uh, 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 quit work. And so, and those earnings that are, uh, uh, go away. And so, it's not really an earnings tax. It's really an, uh, a benefit reduction deferral. And that, and that recomputation is uh, giving you a credit. Uh, so, the earnings, what people pay in the earnings tax in the form of a smaller benefit, really doesn't escape, assuming that they continue to live. Uh, it, it just gets recomputed uh, in the form of a higher benefit when they, in fact, do cease to stop uh, working. However, in this case, I don't see any advantage uh, to doing that. I mean, in particular, why not just defer? Um, why go through all that headache? Why not just defer taking Social Security at age 70, um, if, especially if he doesn't really need the money, and if he's working, he probably doesn't need the money. Uh, and so the, the, there's no advantage to doing the earnings tax benefit recomputation versus just postponing the claiming and therefore getting the benefit recomputation on the full kind of corpus. Uh, and that's usually 
that will actually get, still give you a better deal because you're going to do the benefit recomputation, the delayed retirement credit on the entire amount um, versus just the part that was uh, absorbed as part of the earnings tax. So, uh, thank Wendell, thanks so much for calling. Really appreciate it. And sorry, I have to wrap it up there, Tom. Fantastic job. Once again, thanks for coming uh, back on the show. Very happy to be here, Kent. Always a pleasure. And you can find out more about Tom Meyer by going to his website, which is Meyer uh, with E's, M-E-Y-E-R-C-G.com. Again, MeyerCG.com. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.